Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to The Roy Green Show podcast. Let's get it to Mr. Trump and the arraignment in Atlanta. What to expect now? And might the U.S. Supreme Court, this is a question that's been asked a few times, might the U.S. Supreme Court intercede prior to the conclusion of the trials and issuance of verdicts? Uh, Jeff Robbins is a former United States attorney for the District of Massachusetts, former chief counsel on the Senate's Permanent Subcommittee on Investigations. He's now a partner at Saul Ewing National U.S. Law Firm and Congressional Investigations Practice Chair. Mr. Robbins, thank you for joining us. Roy, thank you so much for having me. It's an honor to be on your show. Thank you. How would you, as a federal government and Senate senior investigator, were you still in those roles, go about investigating the Donald Trump issues? There are so many twists, so many turns, claims and counterclaims, state and federal legal avenues being pursued. How would you go about an investigation? Um, I would certainly begin by eating from the four food groups, because as you point out, there is so much evidence of so many different kinds of crimes or potential crimes, so many participants or potential participants. In the Georgia case alone, there are 18 uh, uh, co-defendants, and there are as many sort of unindicted co-conspirators as there are sands on the seashore, all of whom ardently wish to not become indicted co-conspirators. So it's a, a ma- it would be a massive task, and of course, uh, the proof is in the pudding. It's not even something that can be done by one jurisdiction, since there are so many, uh, under our system, so many state and federal laws implicated in so many different storylines. What uh, is Mr. Trump's greatest legal challenge or obstacle at this time? Is it the insurrection charge pointing to January 6, 2021 in Washington? I think that it is the Georgia case, and, really? and here's why. Um, in the New York case, there are, for your listeners, I'm sure know this, there are four separate indictments, uh, one in New York for falsifying business records in connection with payments to a, a, a former uh, porn star. There are, uh, in, in, there's in Florida, the uh, classified documents case where uh, Mr. Trump is charged and a couple of his associates are charged with taking classified documents, willfully retaining classified documents, and then obstructing an investigation into his taking and retention of classified documents. There is a federal case in, um, in uh, Washington, D.C., brought only against him, by, again, by the special counsel, Jack Smith, uh, charging him, as you point out, with these, uh, these uh, interference with the uh, counting of uh, electoral votes. And then for the PS de resistance, there is, uh, as of this week, in Georgia, a uh, very sort of sprawling indictment of 19 individuals, uh, one of whom is the former president, for racketeering, conspiracy, solicitation to uh, uh, of, uh, public officials to violate their oaths of office and the like. And that, I think, is the most serious one. And the reason is... There are several reasons. One is that if he is convicted, the racketeering uh, charge, uh, some of these charges have mandatory minimum sentences. There is no discretion. People, if you're convicted, must go to prison. Second of all, under our system, uh, believe it or not, the president of the United States can pardon himself. At least he may well be able to pardon himself. It's untested uh, as to any federal crimes. And if he can't pardon himself, he can 
appoint an attorney general who will decide to withdraw the case against him. That's a very real issue. It wouldn't be a real issue with anybody other than Donald Trump, but with him it is. Under our system, however, the president has no such power to pardon himself for convictions or for crimes committed under state law. And therefore, if he is indeed convicted under Georgia state law, he uh, is out of luck in terms of the let me pardon myself and go about my business strategy. And the third reason why I think this is the toughest one for him is that if you think hurting cats is difficult, imagine trying to keep in line 18 co-defendants and God knows how many unindicted co-conspirators who have every incentive to reach their own plea deal with prosecutors in order to reduce their prison time or avoid prison and testify against him. How in the name of all that is holy is he able to is he going to be able to put his fingers in all those dikes and keep people who have an incentive to testify against him from testifying against him? So he is in a very deep hole all around, but the deepest hole I think is in Georgia. Um so, uh, Mr. Robbins, I, I know I'm going to get a thousand emails at least accusing me of all sorts of things because I'm questioning uh, and not supporting Donald Trump. He has a lot of supporters in Canada, millions in the United States, and they will argue again that the Department of Justice, the FBI, the federal government have been politically weaponized. What do you say to that? And is it possible within the structure of the U.S. government to weaponize agencies against a party or a candidate? Well, certainly, historically, it has been possible to do that. Um, and uh, ironically, one of the players, uh, one of the people responsible for doing just that was the former president. Um, Richard Nixon also uh, did it. Um, Lyndon Johnson did it to some degree. And, of course, we saw a bit of it during the McCarthy era. The reason that I can't uh, um, agree with the notion that these indictments are a function of weaponization is the charges themselves. Let's take the documents case. It's either a crime to take classified documents and willfully retain them and obstruct the government's investigation into your taking of them and your retention of them, or it isn't. That The law on that is pretty straightforward, and the facts in that case do seem to be extraordinarily straightforward. So however disappointed people may be that there is an investigation, there's a prosecution being done by the Department of Justice under the former president's successor, the facts there seem to be awfully straightforward and not easily susceptible of the uh, characterization of a, of a political or politically motivated prosecution. I assume that we all agree that it's, not, that it's illegal and also not helpful to have people take classified documents, nuclear secrets, military secrets, and walk off with them, declare that, uh, you know, that, that Tinkerbell or some other Peter Pan character has, has declassified them and go off into the sunset and keep them and show them to people and the rest of it. Either that stuff gets prosecuted or it doesn't. So there's an example of a situation in which it does seem to me unfair to say that these charges are the result of weaponization. So one now, of the, sorry, please go ahead. You go ahead. No, no, please go ahead. Well, your thought. another example in, in the case. Um, some may remember that uh, in the aftermath of the Georgia election, which was a key state, not the dispositive state, but one of the key states in terms of the outcome of the election, the former president, uh, very disappointed that he was behind, called the Georgia Secretary of State and said, all I want you to do is to find 11,870 votes, which is more uh, than uh, one more than I need. In other words, if you can find me 
that number of votes, I will win the election. There's no shame in simply saying that you've recalculated. Now, surely that's not an acceptable practice in a democracy to, to phony up or to call for the phoning up of, of, of votes. We can't proceed that way. So there's another example to your questioner and to your question of something which I think isn't easily put in the category of a weaponized uh, criminal charge. So the question that's been asked uh, repeatedly in the United States, and I've seen it uh, asked on uh, repeat broadcasts on uh, television news, radio news, heard it on radio news, will the Supreme Court, is there a chance the Supreme Court, and Mr. Trump appointed a number of them, I think three justices, is there a chance the Supreme Court will involve itself in the Trump trials prior to a verdict being delivered? What do you think, Mr. Robbins? So it's such a good question. Here's why I think they won't. And if you'll permit me, I'll give you a caveat. What's a lawyer without a caveat? I think they won't because there is a appropriate sensitivity on the part of the Supreme Court of the perception that it has become too political and has lost its credibility. There's at least one justice who couldn't care less about that perception, I think, but that's the concern on the part of the court. Second, some of these indictments involve charges that are so short that they don't really involve any noteworthy issues. You can't take the classified documents, you can't keep them, and so forth. There are also state law charges, and under our system, which is a complicated system uh, uh, for some, uh, the, it, it's considered sort of against the grain and impermissible for uh, federal courts to intervene in state uh, courts' administration of their own criminal justice system. Obviously, in Georgia and New York, we have that. And finally, there's the general principle that if you're going to review a case, that the review should take place after all the evidence is in, after the trial is finished, after all the rulings have been made, and after all, after there's a verdict for the purpose of judicial economy. Uh, so those are the reasons I think they won't. Um, and if I haven't bored you and your listeners to tears, I can give you a caveat uh, to that. Please. The caveat is reflected in a story that I was told when I was appointed to the Senate uh, Investigative Committee by somebody who had himself been in the, in the Senate uh, on a committee. An old hand had told him uh, before this fellow had gone down to Washington, he said, son, things ain't all on the level down here. Uh, and that is a, uh, that's just a, a fact that sometimes politics can get in the way. This is, in America, we are hugely polarized, hugely politicized. And it's sort of hold on to your hats in terms of things proceeding as they ordinarily would. Here's an example. The Bush versus Gore case, which your listeners may remember from 2000, when the uh, election of the president is between George uh, W. Bush and Albert Gore, hung in the balance and uh, in the counting of state uh, votes in Florida. Now, a Florida Supreme Court had ruled that under Florida law, there had to be a recount. Ordinarily, as I said, federal courts don't intervene in that. And so one might have been rational in assuming that they wouldn't there. They did. Uh, and the, they ruled that the continued counting of those votes violated the United States Constitution. So... As I say, things aren't completely predictable, but in the ordinary course, I'd expect that it's likelier than not, even significantly likelier than not, that the Supreme Court won't intercede uh, before there's a verdict that's been reached. Okay. I have so many more questions for you, only 45 seconds. Uh, meanwhile, with all of this going on, the presidential campaign will continue and will likely run headlong into 
is court cases next spring or summer. How do you see that playing itself out? Complete mayhem with the uh, former president forced to play sort of um, uh, indictment pinball uh, as he ricochets uh, between and among court appearances and presidential primaries and debates or sometimes non-debates. And so it's going to be a huge headache for him to try to navigate all of that. So you'll see some, uh, so, some form of mayhem uh, in America just because we need more mayhem over the next, <laughs> however it is, 16 months. The Donald Trump arraignment in Atlanta, including his mugshot, continues to make international news. No surprise there, eh? So how does one of America's foremost and multiple Pulitzer Prize winning editorial cartoonists view what took place in Atlanta during Trump's arraignment. Mike Lukovich is the editorial cartoonist with the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. Mike, thanks so much for coming on the show. How are you? Oh, Roy, this is so great to be with you. Uh, and I'm at ground zero here in America, uh, in Atlanta, with uh, you know Trump being held to account. And it's really been an, an amazing situation. Uh, actually, Georgia you know, for the last couple of years has sort of been uh, ground zero. You know, we elected uh, John Ossoff and, uh, and Warnock, uh, Reverend Warnock, as senators. And uh, uh, so it's really been a, an amazing time to, to, be, to be here uh, drawing for the Atlanta Journal-Constitution. And, you know, your city is absolutely gorgeous. Uh, I, I, almost got, I almost worked at, uh, in Atlanta. I was offered a job in the 80s by the, pres- oh. by the president of a company, <laughs> and the program director said, I don't want any Canadians working here. So, oh, man. <laughs> I said, are you kidding me? Well, you you think, huh? Go ahead, I'm Mike. Practically, uh, you know, Roy, I am practically, and so is my wife, we're practically Canadian. All our relatives are from Canada. Uh, uh, my wife's mother and father uh, met in Lake Louise. Uh, they're, they're both Canadian. Uh, uh, my, my grandfather fought in World War I for the Canadian Army. So if 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 um, my wife and I need to seek asylum in Canada, I, I hope they'll take that into consideration. Oh, for sure, absolutely. And uh, we brought <laughs> we we broadcast throughout Alberta and British Columbia. Okay, good. Okay. Yeah, yeah, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, Ontario, we're everywhere, and we have a lot of listeners. We have a lot of listeners in the United States as well. But but you're right. Excellent. You know this this PD program director. I'm, I'm I shouldn't be doing this because we want to talk to you about what you do. But this program director said, I don't want any Canadians working here. And I said, are you kidding me? You think I'm going to, draw, I'm going to move 900 miles? He said, you're going to have 90 days to make it. What does that mean? <laughs> right? Yeah. What exactly does that mean? So I stayed I where no I was. I have no idea. I, I, no. I, he was going to let me know when I got there. But um, <laughs> it never happened. Um, um, Mike, how do you, I've, I've, I've looked at so many of your cartoons and editorial cartooning is so difficult. I think that's one of the most absolutely difficult arts, professional skills in journalism. So generic question, how do you decide what makes an editorial cartoon, and how do you decide how to portray the message you're delivering? Well, that, that's a great question. It's, you know, it really is a challenge every day uh, to come up with, you know, I have to, I have to uh, look at the news, and, and try and reduce it down to a, to a visual image that gets my point across and hopefully does it with, uh, you know, with a twist or with humor. So it's always, it really always is a challenge. And, and uh, I've recently had to, uh, my, my, uh, my deadline is now 4 p.m. in the afternoon, so I don't have a, I used to be able to spend 
until late in the evening, just kind of goofing around, thinking of ideas. But now I have to be much more uh, on the ball. So I, I'm uh, really nervous in the morning trying to come up with an idea. And it's, it's always been that way. You know, it's, I, I've been doing this for over 30 years, and, and I'm still nervous each time I do a cartoon because I'm thinking I don't want to embarrass myself. I want to come up with something, you know, the best thing that, that, that I can do. And, but I like, I like that pressure. I, I like, you know, I, I would never want to just phone something in. I, I still have this desire to do the best, the best cartoon every day. You know, it's good you say that because I still get uh, a little nervous before every program that I do. I've done over 100,000 interviews. You think I got this oh, thing nailed geez. by now, right? But, <laughs> that yeah. I, but I think it's good. If you feel a little butterflies in your gut before you start, that's good. Yeah, no, it's it's uh, and it's not just little butterflies. It's it's uh, it's like yeah. I, I'm just like try. You know, I don't. I'm trying so hard to come up with something uh, as best as I can, and and I, I and I love that part of it. I love the I love the uh, the pressure. Uh, uh, years ago, I was on. I, I used to be on CNN and on Sun uh, the, the cable news network, and on Sundays they'd have me on. And they wouldn't tell me, but they would uh, until I got on the show. But they would say, "Okay, you know, our viewers have decided this is the top issue for the week. So, uh, you know, Mike will be back in 20 minutes with a cartoon on it." <laughs> and so that was that was so nerve wracking to be pressure. on TV and thinking, "Okay, I'm going to really make a fool of myself in, unless I come up with something halfway decent." And uh, but I always I always seem to come through. So I I, I do like the pressure. Yeah, clearly, <clears throat> Mike. So you, you're clearly also not a Trump. Fan, as I uh, as no, I no, I, I think, you're, you I have think no time for this guy, right? Say that, Roy. I'm sorry. Oh, my. Uh, you can safely say that, Roy. I'm not a Trump fan. Uh, so, I, I I often tell people that uh, having Trump uh, both as president and now ever present in the news, it, it's like being married to a nymphomaniac. It's fun at first. But then it just becomes a nightmare uh, dealing with this guy's nonsense constantly. And I just want to tell uh, uh, Canadians how sorry I am that we Americans elected this nutcase president. I hope it doesn't ever happen again. Well, I'll be getting emails now. Sorry, I'll be getting emails now. Mike, uh, can you pick (laughs) a—he has a lot of supporters here. In this country, not well. You know, they, they're let's just put it this way: Trump supporters are vocal wherever they are. Um, All right. Can you pick a cartoon, one cartoon from the last week, which most speaks to how Donald Trump's uh, presence in Atlanta impacted you? Yeah. Okay. Well, l- let me see. Um, so I did one. This was just sort of a, a a a weird kind of cartoon, but it but it it did really well on social media. I, I post my things on Facebook and Twitter and and uh, uh, whatever that new Facebook meta thing is and uh, Instagram. So if, so your listeners, if you go to Mike Lukovich and t- in, in any of those uh, social media places, you can find my cartoons. But I did a cartoon uh, when so I knew Trump was going to be uh, booked and get his photograph and his uh, fingerprints taken. So I did one, and we recently had the 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 the, uh, the tragedy in Maui. Uh, so I I kind of combined everything. I did a cartoon 
with him uh, being being fingerprinted, and he's got he's got ink all over himself. It's on the wall. You know, he's just totally effed it up. And then uh, someone has thrown him a uh, a, a thing of uh, a roll of paper towels, like he did after after whatever the storm. I think it was in Puerto Rico where he was tossing paper towels to people. So I did that cartoon, and that just sort of I think sums up my distaste for this human being. How, how what a crappy person he is, and so I wanted to I wanted to get that across. Mike, I was uh, I was reading uh, the commentaries about you from your fans on on social media today. They just love you. Uh-huh. You're you're uh, you're just you're really admired, and I understand why as I as I watch your cartoons because they're honest. You're honest with oh, your feelings, yeah. and that's what that's what we have to be when we're communicating with uh, with the public in our jobs. How polarized are Americans? Uh, Americans are polarized. Uh, you know, it's you know, I think with with the internet and with Fox News, people are getting, uh, in my opinion, they're getting no, you know nonsense, and they're they they believe this nonsense, and the the challenge for Americans and Canadians and people all over the world will be to uh, be able to uh, uh, understand that that what they're reading or what they're seeing on the internet and what they're seeing on 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 various other websites it's not all accurate and and that's why I think so many people have in America have been misled by Trump and and you know uh, attack the capital. Because they've been they've been so misled, and it's just so frustrating to me. Because I think, you know, are, are we going to develop our, our in, in general? Are Americans going to be able to develop this this knowledge, this this you know, being able to differentiate between falsehoods and truth? And that's that's the problem right now. I think is that people just you know they they want to be pissed off about something and and. And if Fox News tells them what to be pissed off about, they they accept it, even though it's not true. And it's just it's so frustrating to me. If Mr. Trump is found guilty and a prison sentence is delivered, then yeah. what? And how might you can how much you um, cover that as the editorial cartoonist for the Atlanta yeah. Journal Constitution? Well, you know, it's gonna it will be tough to say at this point because. Uh, you know, we don't know, we don't know if he'll be convicted, how long he'll be convicted for, but I'm thinking, I I think what's going to happen and what is happening is that with these four indictments and his mugshot, I think that even many of his supporters are going to think, okay, we can't have this guy representing us. So I think the Republicans are in a bad, are in a bad spot because, they don't want to piss off the remaining uh, mega uh, faithful that uh, the, the people that still love Trump despite his criminality. So they are sort of stuck with this guy, and and so I don't know what's going to happen. I don't know if he's going to, you know, he if he will continue to be the candidate. It looks like he will be because he's still way ahead uh, amongst the primary voters, the the real mega uh, faithful. So I, I just don't know what I, I don't know what. It's too far out to, to and, and it's been such a surprising turn of events up to this point that I just don't know what to what, what what's going to happen. You know, it's interesting to me that uh, 
the other GOP candidates for the nomination are having great difficulty gaining traction, uh, particularly yeah. against Donald Trump. I thought Ron DeSantis of Florida was the heir apparent. I thought DeSantis would really be making inroads and would become the favorite for the nomination. He's he's yeah. he's not doing that. No, he's not. But I don't know how 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 much Canadians are are. are uh, tuned into the intricacies of the of the campaign, but DeSantis is a weird dude, and he just he comes off as such a strange cat that it's hard it's hard I think for for people to feel any you know any excitement towards him. Um, you know Trump Trump's a, in my opinion is a criminal and totally immoral, but there's something he has some sort of charisma that appeals to people. Whereas DeSantis has absolutely none, and the more DeSantis is out in front of people, the more people see, oh, this guy is is icky. Let me let me ask you. I have to ask you because if I don't, I'm just going to get nothing but uh, questions about why I didn't. You okay. do cartoons on uh, nobody's safe, right? Nobody's 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 uh, sanctity is guaranteed. When no, uh, right? I mean that's the way we have to work. You and I both. Right. Right. So when I say Joe Biden and Hunter Biden, what image do you have? Well, so I, you know, uh, Biden is a very, you know, you were talking about how he, it's almost like he doesn't exist. And I think in a way that's good for America because we've had this, uh, our previous, you know, guy Trump was all every day out there and, and this uh, fire hose of nonsense. Well, Biden is sort of in the background. He's getting things done, uh, and 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 it's kind of nice. And 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 Hunter Biden, you know, Hunter Biden's done some th uh, wrong things. You know, he didn't pay his taxes. Right. You know, he he was an he, he he was an addict. He's a troubled he's a troubled man, and and uh, and he. Mike, got, I, I I hate to do this. I, I I have to interrupt because I do this. Sure. I, I don't watch the clock, and then I get behind. I think you'll see New Brunswick uh, did a, a few weeks ago, last week Manitoba had, had put forward a policy in this space. And I think early this week you're going to see Saskatchewan most certainly uh, move uh, forward with uh, a type of similar policy, albeit somewhat different to, to cater to uh, what we've heard from Saskatchewan parents. You just heard the voice of Saskatchewan Premier Scott Moe, who last weekend, last Sunday, shared with us what would be happening this weekend in the province. The provincial government introduced new policies for parental inclusion and consent, schools must seek parent-guardian permission when changing the preferred name and pronoun used by students under the age of 16. Parents and guardians must be informed about the sexual health education and curriculum and have the option to decline their children's participation. There's more. But let's talk about this with the education minister. For the province of Saskatchewan, Minister Dustin Duncan joins us. Minister, good to talk to you. How are you? I'm, I'm well. Thanks for having me. Yeah, good to talk to you. Uh, quite a quite a week. What what prompted this uh, this direction? This, uh, this this new policy? Yeah, I think you know over the course of the last number of years, I think parents have um, certainly been reaching out to to uh, members of the government. Uh, just with a general, uh, I think, a discomfort and concern about um, just a feeling like they were not as involved with their uh, children's education, particularly around what I think people can generally agree upon are more sensitive or controversial uh, parts of uh, parts of the curriculum. And 
this really came to a head uh, at the end of the school year in the community of Lumsden, just outside of Regina, where grade nine class, uh, as a part of their sexual health education, uh, a third party organization was brought in and uh, and made available to the students uh, material that was just, um, you know, I think broadly viewed as being inappropriate. Uh, and so I asked the ministry to uh, to start a review uh, of uh, of a number of different policies. And so we, as you in the intro uh, uh, talked about, um, we're moving forward with allowing for parents to know what and when is being taught uh, in sex ed, regardless of which school division, which isn't really new. 15 out of 27 school divisions in Saskatchewan already have a version of this, uh, where parents are informed and are given the opportunity to opt out. So we're just expanding that across the province. Uh, we're, we're also putting in place a policy to say that when it comes to sexual health education, parents have a relationship with their teacher, but they don't have a relationship with a third-party organization. And so what we're saying is that the, the uh, curriculum needs to be uh, taught by the teacher, not by a third-party organization, so that in the event that there are issues, that the parents can have that discussion with, um, with the teacher and not try to track down a third-party organization. And, uh, and the other part, too, as you've mentioned, is that uh, parents will have the opportunity to provide consent when a child under the age of 16 expresses a desire to uh, change their name and, uh, and pronouns. Now, what's the reaction been? What's the response been from parents across the... I'll ask you, first of all, about positive response. What, what have you heard? Yeah, it's been um, overall, uh, I know both to my office as well as to uh, certainly government MLAs that have reached out to me, it has been um, overwhelmingly a positive reaction from parents. Um, This is really trying to get parents closer to the classroom, not further away, Uh, really trying to involve and include parents uh, in in their children's lives. Uh, You know, I'll say too, it's been heartening to uh, get uh, quite a bit of positive feedback, frankly, from teachers and, and school board trustees albeit, you know, probably quieter uh, than the general public, but uh, certainly I've had a number of teachers and, uh, and school board trustees that have reached out to, uh, to say that this is a, is a positive move for them. You know, if you think about it, for, particularly for policies that have had been developed um, kind of quietly over the last couple of years by some school divisions that really um, the default position had been um, to not engage with the parents when a student uh, expressed an interest in changing their name or their gender. Um, you know, and I think for a lot of teachers that, that put them, felt like it put them in a compromised position because at some point the parents are going to find out. Uh, and so what this policy is really saying is that the default position cannot be how do we keep this information from the parents? The default position needs to be what support do we have to provide and need to provide to that student so they are comfortable to come to a place where they can inform, uh, frankly, the most important people in their life, and that's their parents. Yeah. I'm going to pull a quote out of left field, or the left part of my brain, maybe the right part, I don't know. But uh, quite a few years ago, we were airing a program on education and on teacher responsibility, and a teacher called in, minister, and said, she was absolutely taken aback when a parent said to her during a parent-teacher meeting, you're not doing a good job of raising my child. And I have never, ever forgotten that. And I, I he- kind of hear you saying that, in a way. Am I yeah, correct? No, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I think, um, you know, this has been something that had been certainly growing in Saskatchewan for, for some time now, but really kind of bubbling under the surface. Um, and I think the issue in Lumsden really brought it to a fore. Um, but I, I think it was just a sense that, um, you know, 
ultimately, you know, first and foremost, parents are the first educators for children. Um, they are and should be the most important people in, uh, in a child's life. Um, teachers um, stand in the place of parents, but they don't replace parents, and they shouldn't stand in the way of parents. Uh, and so this is really not only just saying to, um, uh, you know, I think sending a message um, to, to our education system that we need to involve parents to a greater d- degree, but I think it also is going to be, uh, for some parents, a challenge as well, that they need to uh, take uh, this opportunity and this advantage to become more involved in their in their kids' lives. Yeah, we yeah, know we know sure. the evidence is there that um, academically, socially, uh, children do better um, when when parents uh, are are involved to a greater degree. So I was listening to a newscast a little earlier today, and I quoted a, a mom in Saskatchewan who was challenging this initiative and said she's concerned that it may drive kids who are uh, identifying as uh, gay or, or otherwise identifying um, back into the closet. And she, she had concern for, if I remember the news story correctly, she had concern for her own children. Have you heard that? And what would you say to that mother? Yeah, I, I would say that, I mean, we do obviously want to have a safe and welcoming environment for all of our students, um, particularly for students who are, you know, think about, we're talking about children. Um, they're not smaller version of adults. Yeah, that's um, true. They are children. And so, um, you know, particularly for those children that may be struggling with some of these issues, particularly around their identity, um, these are probably for children the most um, challenging and important things that they will be struggling with. And so the default view um, from some is that we should keep parents out of that. And our view is that, no, we need to involve the parents, but we need to do that in the right way. We need to do that in a safe way. There are already mechanisms within school protocols in the event that a child is at risk, either in reality or their perception that they're at risk um, because of something in the home. So those already exist. This is really just saying that if a child does express in the event that they want to change their name and their gender, look, for a lot of things that are, you know, I would argue less important than that, such as a child taking part in a, in a school trip, a child um, having medication dispensed, um, a child who, um, you know, a, a teacher and an administration that develop an intervention plan for that child. For all of those things, the parents already have to consent for that. So we want to ensure that parents are involved, but let's make sure that we are wrapping around the support for that child because obviously they're in a place where they're going to need that support. Uh, and so we want to make sure that we're doing that. So, are you? Uh, do I hear you saying that uh, the concerns about uh, about your policies that they may expose children to uh, an unwelcoming environment at home, if the parents or the guardians become aware of uh, their wanting to change their preferred name and pronouns, um, that I, I, do I hear you saying that's a bit of a false flag argument? Yeah, I, I think that um, you know, I, I think. In some of the public discussion that we've had from, you know, in the, in the few days that this policy has been announced in Saskatchewan, I think some of the opponents of the policy, um, you know, frankly, I think they're, they've put forward, you know, in my view, um, um, you know, frankly, some, some, some dangerous narrative around this or dangerous messaging in that for those parents that support what the government has announced, that somehow um, they are a danger to their own children, that somehow they're not supportive of their own children. 
I've had lots of uh, parents that have reached out to me uh, that have, you know, certainly refute that notion to say that, um, you know, again, we're talking about children, um, you know, their perception of, you know, a, a perception of a danger or a fear that they may have, um, you know, may not be well-founded. And let's not assume that um, just because a parent doesn't know that it's because they, you know, the child is at risk. Um, we need to involve parents to a greater deg- degree, not less, but we need to do so in a safe way for the child. And so that's why we're, as a part of this policy, developing um, protocols with the school divisions so that we can balance off both. We can, you know, we can, we can ensure that we have a safe uh, place for that child, but we can also make sure that we're doing so in a way that doesn't exclude the parents. Yeah. Home is a safe place, or should be, and there are laws to make sure that that is the reality. There are laws, there are criminal laws on the books to make sure that that's a, the reality you go to school to learn. Um, Absolutely. I probably got none myself of, into trouble. Of, but I don't, you know, you know, go ahead, Minister, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, I was just going to say absolutely, and none of this changes or diminishes that. No, you know, you, you go to school to to learn. It's it's a, it's a it's a preparatory environment for when you become an adult. It's 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 the learning process, and uh, I, I I you know I come from a different generation. I know that's going to upset some people, but I do, and yeah, this intergenerational stuff really pisses me off, but. Um, I can't conceive of parents not being included and engaged in every aspect of their kids' lives. That's the way, that's the way a family operates. That's the way a family is built. That's the way kids learn how to develop a family of their own going forward. Am I, am I, am I, am I missing something, Minister Duncan? Am I just, am I just out to lunch here? No, I, I don't, I don't think so. Um, you know, I think certainly that's what, that's the, the vast majority of the feedback that we've been receiving um, since we made the policy announcement in the last couple of days. Parents, they just want to be involved. They want to be involved to a greater degree, um, and particularly as I think, you know, with things like social media yeah. uh, and, yeah. Uh, yeah. you know, just with the challenges that this generation of students and, and children are facing versus previous ones. Um, uh, you know, we just we need, need to make that, uh, you know, support network for the students um, and for children, um, stronger, uh, not weaker. And uh, the view of the government is that that needs to include the parents, not exclude the parents. I just want to go over what we're going to talk about now. So, and hopefully I'm explaining this properly. I will ask our guest when I'm done. But I don't know how many people are truly familiar with this next story. Even though it has received... Um, international attention, and it's Canadian. April Hutchinson is a Team Canada female power weightlifter from London, Ontario. Ms. Hutchinson has been very vocal about a transgender powerlifter setting new records for competitions in the sport at the 2023 Western Canadian Championship Female Masters Unequipped category. The transgender athlete is Anne Andrus, a biological male who identifies as a woman and lifted a final score of 597 kilograms, that's over 200 kilograms more than her closest opponent. April Hutchinson argues Andrus' victory establishes, quote, records which will never be broken by a woman. 
The Canadian Powerlifting Union's Gender Self-Identification Trans Inclusion Policy, announced earlier this year, allows athletes to compete with the gender they self-identify with versus biological birth. Now, Ms. Hutchinson and other female athletes wrote letters of objection to the CPU, and some female weightlifters dropped out of the competition because of Ann Anders' participation. The International Powerlifting Federation has now given its Canadian counterpart an ultimatum, declaring the CPU must align with IPF rules on transgender competitors and provide government-issued ID with their gender identity. Meanwhile, this is interesting. You might not have expected this. The International Chess Federation announced transgender women are barred from competing in official events for females until an assessment of gender is made by officials. I just want to say this as well. A number of years ago, there was a transgender teacher in Alberta um, transitioned from female to male. And that teacher lost his job because of that transition. And for the life of me, it made no sense why that teacher was not able to keep his job. I didn't think the sexual, um, uh, the, the, uh, uh, transgender aspect of of the teacher's life would, in fact, create a, an inappropriate situation in the classroom. Anyway, they went to court a number of times, and we talked to the teacher many times. April, how are you? Hi, Roy. I'm good. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. Did I did I describe your situation and what's going on properly? Yeah, basically, that was exactly um, what's been going on. Uh, I don't know if you did mention that the IPF policy in which um, the CPU has to align with, it is based on testosterone monitoring. So not only do you have to declare that you are transgender um, and also go through testing, you do have to follow the monitoring for a couple of years before competing. Okay. You, you, you felt that Canadian media wouldn't cover your story or your, your situation, yes? Oh, I've been I've been praying for Canadian media to uh, to interview me. Um, I think Rebel News was the only uh, Canadian media outlet that actually touched on the topic. But no, you're you're the first, Roy. Well, I'm glad to talk to you. But let me ask you first of all, if I may, what your overall sense is of gen- transgender athletes participating in sports? Well, overall, a hundred percent. I don't believe it's fair. Um, Sports is for bodies and biology. Uh, they're categorized for a reason into male and female. So I, I don't agree with it. Majority do not agree with, um, I guess I will say, uh, trans-identifying males in female sports. Let me ask you this. How much training do you do weekly? What does it consist of, April? I mean, I, I used to train more maybe a couple of years ago, but it used to be about five times a week. Um, and it's not just the training, it's also the lifestyle. It's pretty much a 24 seven, uh, I guess not a career, but you know, nutrition and sleep goes along with it. Uh, right now I'm training about three or four times a week. And then again, the, the sleep and nutrition goes along with it. It's very much a lifestyle. Um, you know, I do give up a lot of, uh, family obligations and, you know, dates with my boyfriends or going on vacation because of my training. Yeah, because I want to get a sense of how hard you work at this, because it's not just going and lifting weights in the gym until you get a few more pounds and a few more pounds or kilos, and then all of a sudden you're in competition and you go and train a little bit. This is this is dedicated, hard work. 
Um, so, so it's nutrition, it's, it's training and it's consistent and it's tough work. Yes. Yeah. I think consistency is the key for sure. Um, but I mean, it's not just going into the gym and going, Oh, I want to get toned. I want to lose some weight. It's hitting, trying to hit PRs, uh, on a regular basis and, and, you know, watching your numbers go up. Mm-hmm. Uh, and to be an elite athlete, you need to maintain that. Um, I know for myself, if I take three weeks off, my numbers go all the way back down. So you do have to. That's why I'm saying there's a lot of stuff I've sacrificed just to yeah. keep up with the, the training. Tell us a bit about what you've accomplished as a Team Canada powerlifter. So as a Team Canada powerlifter, uh, last year I did go to Worlds for the first time. They were in uh, St. John's, Newfoundland, actually. Of all places, I went to Canada <laughs> for, for Worlds, um, and I got fourth place there. Um, I also went to North American Championships last year, and I just came back, actually, this year. And I got some gold last year, silver this year, and I have the North American deadlift record. Congratulations. Thank you. But you say that regardless of how hard you train, regardless of how dedicated you um, make your life, to this pursuit of as much perfection or perfection in in your particular disciplines of weightlifting, you cannot possibly reach the numbers, the totals of kilos lifted by someone who is biologically male, is a power lifter, but identifies as a woman. You cannot do that. Yes? It's next to impossible. I mean, with powerlifting alone, I mean, each sport is different. A male will have, at the very minimum, a 60% advantage over a female. So, I mean, I could train and train. I mean, there's people, I mean, there's athletes that I know that have been, I mean, world champions, uh, females, that have been training for 10 years or more that still haven't hit the numbers that, um, the, that Anne has hit. So, I mean, that's, you know, I will never break those records. I will never obtain those records. You know, not that I was really going for them, but a biological female will never hit those records that Anne took on two weeks ago. Yeah, and you're not alone as far as female athletes are concerned who are speaking out against um, um, trans people, athletes participating in, in women's sports. Uh, Riley Gaines, a uh, um, very successful swimmer in, in the United States, is uh, speaking out uh, that it's an increasing issue among women in sports. How, how, talk to us a bit about that. Yeah, actually, Riley Gaines and I became good friends for all of this. Um, at a time when I started speaking out, which was over a year ago, I was very alone in my fight. Um, I was kind of writing letters to the Federation. I was being ignored. So I knew I needed to get a bigger platform. So I actually reached out to uh, NCAA swimmer Marcy Smith. She's the head of ICONS who have helped Riley Gaines and other athletes. Um, uh, you know, I don't know if you've heard of Inga Thompson, the cyclist that had to go through all those numerous um, competitions against uh, trans-identifying males, losing prize money. Uh, so, I mean, they came and kind of helped me, kind of swooped me up in their arms and, like, carried me through this and gave me a bigger platform and said, you know what, you just focus on your training, April. And, you know, they got me a lawyer and, I mean, they just took care of everything for me. Um, I still was very vocal, but, I mean, um, they did help me a lot in the fact that I didn't feel alone because, you know, if you feel alone, you kind of get scared and timid, right? But if you have an army behind you, you're going to be more vocal. So, um, 
Yeah, no, it's been great, and it's been increasing. I mean, many, many members of the CPU are with me. We have a couple athletes, actually, that competed against Anne that, was well, I guess they were supposed to, but they actually dropped out. They actually wrote the Federation. They said, look, it, this is completely unfair. I do not want to compete against Anne at this uh, Western Regional. This is one of the things, that, one of the points that have been made. I received a, a number of emails after... Uh, I put on Twitter, posted on Twitter that I'd be speaking with you today. And uh, the suggestion was made or the question was asked, why do women athletes then not just en masse walk away from meets, not participate in meets? And maybe that'll drive the point home with their governing federations. It's, uh, it's a question I saw a number of times. What do you think about that? So that's the, that I, I hear that every day. I'm sure you probably, do, yeah. That's actually um, probably one of our not biggest pet peeves that we hear, but People think it's just so easy to train your butt off and then just go, oh, I'm just going to walk away from this competition. Um, Now, powerlifting, it doesn't work with powerlifting because it's an individual sport. We have hundreds and hundreds of members in the CPU alone. So, I mean, even if myself and four other lifters didn't show up and Anne competed and showed up, Anne would still take gold medal and would still break records. And would still go to nationals. I mean, it doesn't affect Anne. Mm-hmm. So that's the thing. It's not a team event. It's not like a rugby team or um, you know a hockey team, something like that. So it really doesn't affect powerlifting. And you have to keep in mind too, there are people that support Anne. You know. Um, oh, I'm sure. We saw, yeah. yeah, we saw that at nationals. Um, there was, you know, of course, there's going to be people that support it because, um, you know, someone might have um, a transgender grandchild. You know, you don't know how it affects them in their lives. Yeah, it's not a simple. It's not a simple issue in the in the big picture. Exactly. It's not a simple issue. Yeah, it affects everyone differently, and and at the end of the day, uh, Roy, we we want everyone to lift. I want and to lift. I want everyone to lift. Uh, trans athletes, um, females, males. Um, it's just that it needs to be on a fair, even uh, like a fair field, right? So what we had asked initially was for a separate category, um, you know, but then, you know, the IPF came in and obviously, obviously the testosterone monitoring has been around for years. Other federations are using it. It does not discriminate against Anne because Anne just has to follow the policy and get tested and pass. And then that's it. Yeah, I, I believe I read earlier today that a cycling association in Europe, I think it's called Waffle Cycling. I'm not sure what that is, but. Mm-hmm. Um, they have uh, special events, or they have three events, and I just read it in a cursory manner. I'd have to read it in more detail, but it seems that they're approaching it from that perspective. You know, we'll have uh, different events for different people and uh, different groups. Uh, I'm, I don't want to get in too far into this because I don't know enough about it. What do you uh, What do you want to see take place, April? Is the IPF policy satisfactory? It's not 100%. Um, you know... This week, I was very happy to hear the steps forward. I mean, it's not perfect, but it's definitely an improvement. I was talking to the president of the IPF the other day, and I just said, you know, thank you so much for for stepping in and protecting women, because my federation literally was doing nothing. I don't know how many people wrote in. And, you know, I don't want to bash them at all because I I do feel like their hands were tied and they probably, I mean, it's a very sensitive topic. Yes, it is. If you say one thing, like, I mean, I've been called many names just for sticking up 
and trying to ask for fair sports, right? And it, and it hurts for sure because I know who I am. I know I'm a good person. I care deeply about everyone. I'm very compassionate. Um, but when it comes, again, when it comes down to sports, it's just a separate thing, right? Um, so it's not perfect, but I did think the IPF, I said, you know, I think down the road they'll have to revisit and maybe tweak it again or make it, make it a little bit more strict. But it's definitely improvement. And, you know, I think I said that in my interview the other day. The policy change means more to me than any gold medal that I could get. So, yeah, do I mean, you have you have one goal. Tell us about your events, please. What do you do? So, um, I mean, <laughs> I usually have about two or three competitions a year. And any powerlifter at that level should probably have no more than three because uh, it does take a lot out of you. Um, but, yeah, my first competition was in 2022, which was Nationals. And that's when I got the gold medal at Nationals, which qualified me for the world in St. John's. Right. So, so what, are, what are the events yeah. that you do, though? What are the events? What, um, what are the lifts that you do? So the powerlifting events or competitions it consist of three lifts. So you start off with the squat. And you'll do, you'll do three squats, and then whatever your highest number is from those three attempts will be added in a total at the end. Mm -hmm. And then you go on to bench press, and then you go on to deadlift, and that's how you get your total in the end with your best lift in each lift. Okay, so if you're doing your very best, and you set personal bests, set records, win gold medals, but you set your you do personal bests, and you say, no matter what I do, I cannot compete against this fellow competitor under the situation we're dealing with, I can understand how that would be a very difficult situation for you to, uh, to deal with. Um, so what next? What's next for you? Well, going back to what you just said there, I just want to, I do want to say it, it does, it has affected my mental health greatly and it does affect the mental health of the women. Um, just, I guess, going to competitions and knowing like, Hey, I'm going to lose. You're kind of set up for failure, right? Um, so for me, I mean, these, these last few years of just dealing with this and, and speaking out and, you know, having a little bit of backlash, um, ask my boyfriend, <laughs> I probably lost a lot of sleep in the last two years. So it's been very stressful and which has affected my training and which affects my eating and my nutrition. Right. So I just want to put that out there that, yeah. uh, people think of the, they should think of the physical and the mental aspect of it all. Thank you for listening to today's podcast. If you want to hear more, subscribe to The Roy Green Show on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you find your favorites. And if you like what you hear, leave us a review and tell a friend. I'm Roy Green. Have a great weekend.